Good morning, Grace Covenant Church. Thanks, Troy. (laughs) This morning, we will be embarking into Psalm 51. So please open your Bibles to the 51st Psalm. And as you are making your way there, uh, I, I struggled this week in trying to figure out a good introduction to Psalm 51, a psalm that I'm sure most of you uh, hold near and dear to your heart and have read so many times. And so to give us an an introduction this morning, I've decided to go to the New Testament. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, are going to help us understand what David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to get us to understand in Psalm 51. So here, Luke 18 9 through 14. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." So my question for you this morning as we dive into Psalm 51 is which one of these two are you? Who are you this morning as we jump into Psalm 51? Have you been putting on a show of righteousness for some time now? Persuading others about how holy you are when deep in your heart you know that you don't believe in Christ? Or are you like the tax collector? who is utterly broken and has a contrite heart. This morning, David is going to walk us through this very idea of how to have a repentant, contrite, humble heart. And I hope that the word of God convicts and encourages you this morning as we read it aloud. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight." so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice." Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bowls will be offered on your altar. Hear the word of God this morning. Now, as we begin in Psalm 51, um, we're we're going to do a couple of things. First, I want to just give you the context. Uh, If you remember, Psalm 51 is written after Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12. Um, we, We hadn't got that far yet in our 2 Samuel study, but Lord willing, we'll get back to it. But in this chapter, Nathan the prophet goes and he confronts David for his sin. This sin that David, when he was walking uh, on on the rooftop of his palace, sees Bathsheba, he lusts after her, he calls her to himself, and he commits adultery with this woman. And then as he is feeling convicted of that sin, instead of pleading for forgiveness at this point, then he decides, here's a great idea, I'll invite her husband back home, Uriah, and try to get him to be with her so that they'll think this is his baby. Well, that doesn't work out because Uriah has righteousness and won't go do that while his men are out in the field fighting. So what does David do at this point when his plan has been upended? Well, he has Uriah killed in battle. And so again, all of this then um, comes to a point where Nathan calls out David for his sin. And this is when we get Psalm 51. This is when we get this great psalm that most of us have read over and over again. And so, for this well-loved psalm, I'm going to break it up into three parts for us this morning. The first part uh, that you can understand uh, this morning will be confession, which is going to be verses 1 through 6. So if you're a note taker, confession, verses 1 through 6. And then verses 7 through 12, you can label creation. So 7 through 12 will be uh, this idea of creation, and we'll get to that. And then the last verses, 13 through 19, will be charge. Those are our three C's of Psalm 51. So let's, let's dive in then to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 begins with a cry. In fact, it begins with an imperative, uh, a command that David is giving the Lord, have mercy on me, O God. This is David crying out, right, for mercy or compassion, knowing that he doesn't deserve it, he hasn't merited it. He's calling upon God to bestow on him mercy. And and so interesting, right, is, is that David is the king of Israel. David should have known better than most anybody in the kingdom of what he should and should not be doing. And so he cries out to God, his covenantal God, to have mercy on him. And this cry of mercy 
is based on some attributes of God. So David cries out for mercy according to. You'll see in verse 1, there's two according to's, right? The first according to that David makes reference to is God's steadfast love. We heard that read in Lamentations. We've even sung about it already this morning. But steadfast love, from our study through the Psalms, I hope you remember this word. I hope you remember this idea of love. This is God's faithful love, his covenantal love. You've heard me talk about this again and again as we've been through the Psalms. It's his hesed love, is the Hebrew there. And now, this is quite remarkable, that David... The king, who should be a man of faithfulness to God's word, is shown to be utterly unfaithful. Yet he calls upon the unchanging faithfulness of the Lord. Also, remember that, that David, only few chapters after um, or before 2 Samuel 12, is given this covenant right? We understand that in 2 Samuel 7, that God makes a covenant with David. And so David is calling upon God to remember his steadfast love about the covenant that God had just made with him, spoken from the mouth of Nathan again. And so it's really interesting to see when you go back. So if you have time this afternoon, even if you don't, go back and read 2 Samuel 7. And it's here God uses the same language of steadfast love that will not depart from David or his line. And he contrasts that with Saul, where his steadfast love did depart from Saul, but not from David. So David, who has committed this atrocious, not a, but multiple sins, now is calling upon God and his steadfast love to have mercy upon him. But secondly, he's saying, have mercy on me because you are abundant in mercy. Now, these two attributes remind us of what Justin read to us this morning in the call to worship. We get this idea of God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy out of Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. So we see here when Moses is asking God to pass before him, and so the Lord does pass before him and proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, for giving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. Now that's going to be interesting because we see that yes, God is a God of steadfast love, of abundant mercy, and the ability to forgive, but there still needs to be some sort of atonement made. We'll get there. I'm not going to jump too far ahead. I'm getting excited. But we see, right, that God is a steadfast, loving God, full of mercy and able to give mercy to David as he calls out to God for forgiveness. Now, in this confession, we are going to see now as he moves uh, into a repetitious understanding of his sin and his need to be made clean. We're going to see this repeated again and again and again in Psalm 51. In fact, in threes, we're going to see a lot of repetition in threes. And so what we see is David's realization after he calls out for this mercy, for this forgiveness, that he needs to be made clean. Blot me out 
Wash me thoroughly and cleanse me from my sin. He realizes, I am so utterly sinful. And he says those three words of cleansing, and then he uses three words of sin, transgressions, iniquity, and sin. And for some of you Old Testament scholars out there, you're like, yes, tell me the exact meaning of all three of these words and how exactly they're different. But I'm just going to pop your bubble and say, listen, this is repetition for a reason. He's helping you to see, yes, his sin, all of it, it's just all-encompassing, and he needs to be forgiven for it, for his transgressions, for his iniquities, and for his sin. He is a sinner. David uses these synonyms for a reason, to just point us to the fact that he is a sinner. And then what does the next verse say? For I know my transgressions. David states that he knows his sin. Now, I don't know about you guys, but maybe you've made this apology before in your life. Kind of goes like this. I'm sorry that I made you sad. I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings, right? No one's ever heard that apology before. No one's ever given that apology before. It's the worst apology ever. That is not a confession of sin. That is not you repenting for your sin because you don't even know what you sinned, right? You're just saying, I'm sorry you, you've reacted this way. It's probably with you, not with me. No, David is very clear. I know my transgressions. When you're making a confession of sin to the Lord or to someone else, it is not okay to not know what you're confessing. You must understand your sin. And this is what David does. David, above all people, knows his sin. He understands his sin. He is able to have knowledge of it and acknowledge it. He's not just like, I'm sorry, Lord, but he knows exactly what he's done to sin against God. And in fact, he says, my sin is ever before me. Why does David say that? Well, it's because he took Bathsheba to be his wife. And now he sits there and he looks at Bathsheba and what is he reminded of? His murderous, adulterous sin. That's what he sees. Now, I think God gives grace there and they're able to move past that Lord willing. But in seeing her, he is reminded, I murdered her husband. I took what didn't belong to me to be mine. I am so utterly sinful, David cries out. He knows it is always in front of him. Now we get to this verse in verse 4 where everybody has a problem, right? Against you and you alone have I sinned. And everyone goes, wait, wait, wait. David sinned against so many people in this. Bathsheba, Uriah, the kingdom, all the men, all the things that he did. David's sinned against everybody. He needs to say that he needs to confess that sin to everybody. But remember that David's in a specific covenant with the Lord. And in this poetic movement of Psalm 51, his movement here is to say, against you and you alone have I sinned. I am your chosen one. I am your king that you have put upon this throne and I have sinned against you and failing and what I have done. He confesses to God. He goes straight to the Lord and confesses this sin after he has just been utterly broken by Nathan. Because I have done what is evil in your sight. 
Now David moves, and I wonder if your confessions sound like this, because David, right after he confesses his sin, basically says, and whatever your judgment, whatever you do, it's righteous, and I accept it. That's his movement from confession to accepting whatever it is that the Lord's discipline would be in his life. And I think for most of us, we make the confession and then we, right? And we're like, but, you know, just, just forgive me. And I'm gonna move on. And as we read Hebrews 12, we just understand that we, as a, a, a person who has been saved by the blood of Christ, we will be disciplined. And that's because God loves us. And so David even acknowledges this here. I know that you're blameless in your judgment because you are perfect is what he's saying. You are justified in all the words that you will give me. I accept it. He is willing to accept the consequences of his sin, even in our confessions. To each other and to the Lord, we must be ready to accept the consequences of our sin. But a heart that's actually been broken by sin says, I deserve whatever I get. I'm so sorry that I have done this to you, Lord. But what's, as he keeps moving, these next two verses, I know we're just kind of plugging through these verses and it's wonderful as we just see how well David understands his sin. So he's going to accept his judgment, but then he's going to go back and help us understand just how sinful he is. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, is David now trying to blame shift and put the blame on his mother for his sin? Right? Oh, it's because in, in my mother's sin, I was conceived, and, and I'm a sinner, so forgive me, God. No, that's not what he's doing. I'll just answer your question before you even ask it. No, that's not what he's doing. He's making reference to this idea of original sin. He is making reference back to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 1 through 3, where they sinned against the Lord, and Adam, acting as our, our federal representative for all of humanity, in his sin, now death came to everyone. And sin came to everyone. And so David's just acknowledging the world that he lives in now, which has been tainted by original sin. We can do fun theological categories here because I love doing fun theological categories. But that would be original sin, but we would also see that David's acknowledging this idea of total depravity. The fact that we are born into a world where sin is rampant and, and us being born into sin, we actually have an inclination to want to sin over doing things that are actually holy, which is why God must save us from our sin so that we would actually want to be holy and not continue going after sin. Praise God. And so, yes, there, there is this reality that David is acknowledging. So this original sin, this total depravity, and then we have actually seen him confess his actual sin, his sins that he has actually committed, right? My sin is ever before me. I have sinned against you and you alone. He is telling God, yes, I, I have sinned against you. I want forgiveness for that, but I'm just born into this sinfulness. So I'm always awful. I always need your forgiveness. God, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Now, David is just piling this up. So again, in our confessions, the ones that are like, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, we are seeing such an utter contrast to some of our maybe weak 
confessions and one one of a confession that, that a man has actually been broken by his own sin. Now, now, if you have not underlined, highlighted, uh, marked, starred, verse 6, do it now. Because this is, is where we get the, the title of this sermon, which I don't think is in your notes because I hadn't had it by the time they were printed. Um, but the, the title of this sermon is The Delight of the Lord. And in verse 6, we read, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In verse 6, we realize what the Lord delights in. Have you thought about that before? What brings the Lord delight? Uh, as, as followers of Christ, as, as lovers of God, we ought to know what brings the Lord delight. And I think most of the time we think about what brings us delight, right? We're more concerned with that. And then we even have Christian hedonism. Don't get after me, John Piper fans. I like this too, okay? Christian hedonism is good. Christian hedonism says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's a wonderful saying. But what I want you to hear here is that God is saying, this is what I delight in. This is what I love. This is what I want. This is what brings me delight. And what is the thing that brings God delight? It is the truth in the inward being. So the Bible represents man as a dichotomy. Man, you guys are getting a theological lesson today, right? Dichotomy just means two parts, the inner man and the outer man. And so the Bible presents this, this dichotomy for, un, for us to understand man. And, and in this idea of God wanting the truth or, or delighting in the truth, it's the idea of the truth being in the inner man or the secret heart. So what is that? What is this inner man secret heart? It is what we believe. It is what we love. It is what we actually trust. And what brings God delight is when the truth is in our inward being. Our psalm is going to continue with this theme later, and I'm going to pick it up again. But I wanted you to see that God delights. And, and this idea that God delights in his creation and, and what he delights in his creation is what they believe in their inward being. That is the truth or God's truth. And in this context, in which we've already be, been reading about the sinfulness of David, we see that this truth is placed in the context of us realizing as the creation that we are sinners, utterly, thoroughly in need of salvation. So, the confession. We see that David goes above and beyond to explain his sinfulness. Now we move to creation. We go to verses 7 through 12. Now, I told you that as David is starting, and, and he's talking about needing to be blotted out, needing to be washed, to be cleansed, he has this idea of atonement in mind. So after confessing his sin and realizing the delight of the Lord, David moves to understanding his need to be forgiven. Because if you go back and you read the law, right? If you go back to the law and you read the law, especially for sacrifices and burnt offerings, tell me which one he needs to do for murder and adultery. Oh wait, there are none. 
So David, and realizing this, knows, oh man, I am a murderous adulterer. I need to be purged by God. So he asks God, purge him, wash him, blot out all of his iniquities. And what's so cool here is that David is using ceremonial language. David is invoking the Lord here with reference to hyssop. Now, again, I'm, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but I did research it for you this week. Okay, so hyssop, what we're seeing with this idea of being purged with hyssop, these are dried leaves that get bundled together and they're so fine that they're actually like this really cool, fine paintbrush that is to be used. So when David's using this language of purge me with hyssop, he's actually talking about or referring back to the Levitical coats where the Levitical priests would make something ceremonially clean. And so what would they do? They would take the blood of a lamb and they would spread it on things to clean it. That would tell them that this thing that they are now spreading the blood on is ceremonially clean. But even earlier, and keeping with this idea of the Exodus, the first time, I believe, so I could be wrong here, but the first time I believe that we see this idea of hyssop being used is actually in the Exodus. So, the night where the, the people of God have to go up and paint their doors with blood over the doorposts, what were they using? Hyssop. They were painting their doorposts with hyssop. Well, why were they doing that? Because the blood of the lamb was supposed to act as a sign for the angel of the Lord to pass over them, to not destroy them for their sinfulness, but to pass over them, to, to not come and bring uh, the, the wrath of the Lord on them. And so then we see David using the same language. David saying, purge me with hyssop, blot out my iniquities, cleanse me, atone for my sin. This is so beautiful language that, that David is using because he understands that his sin is not just no big deal. It's not like, ah, oh, well, God will forgive me. No, he is utterly broken for his sin. Now, another thing that David shows us here, going back to the fact that he said, I will receive whatever you have ready for me, God. In this atoning work, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, I think all of us are able to confess that when we sin and we continue to sin, that that joy, that gladness that we have starts to dissipate. We, we don't have it anymore we actually become uh, cold towards the Lord. We don't want to follow God. David is saying, yeah, that's biblical. That, that's a reality. We don't feel it. We don't hear it. We don't enjoy it. So my, my charge to you or my encouragement to you this morning is, if you're feeling that way, talk to someone about it. Confess your sin. Or if you have a friend or family member or coworker that you have seen changed when they claim to be a Christian, ask the hard question. Get after them. Ask them why they don't seem right anymore. Ask them if they have sin in their life that they need to confess. But I want you to see in this idea of David's bones, these broken bones crying out, let them rejoice. Let his discipline rejoice. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 13. 
if you're familiar with First and Second Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians, a letter that um, I was going to say David, but it's Paul, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians was like a hammer. He got after them for being utterly sinful people, for, for doing things that even Gentiles wouldn't have done. He just destroys this Corinthian church. And then 2 Corinthians, he sees repentance from them. So he's actually encouraging them. He's kind of spreading the balm of the gospel on them. And this is what he writes, starting in chapter 7, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now, as we read that, I want you to think of what David has been telling us so far about how sinful he is, about his need to be forgiven. David has a godly grief. David is showing us as he is convicted of his sin that he knows that he must be atoned for, that he has this indignation, this fear, this eagerness, this earnestness to confess his sin and to repent because that is what people who have been changed by God do. That's the grief that they have. So David cries out, for all of these things in his need for atonement. But then we come, so this is subsection uh, of creation. We have atonement and now we have creation. We, we come to this idea of creating, right? You guys have all sung the song, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And guess what? We're gonna sing it again um, after we're done with this sermon. But this idea of creating in David a clean heart, this is his ask. Note that it's not help me be a better person in order to have a better heart. He says, create in me an altogether clean heart, a new heart. Now, this creation language, right? Yes, it goes back to Genesis 1. It's the very same word that is used as God creates everything out of nothing. So, after crying for forgiveness and acknowledging his sin and his need for atonement, David realizes that he must be made new. He calls out for God to create in him a clean heart, the same God that created the entire universe out of nothing. He's asking for this God to replace his heart of stone and to give him a heart of flesh. He needs a new spirit, one that has been restored and willing to do the will of the Lord and his righteousness, not his own. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit or a steadfast, sturdy spirit. I need a new spirit. I need to be cleansed and put Put a little mark there because we're going to get back to that in a second. And then he calls out, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why would he say something like this? Oh, that's right, because he did it to Saul. 
God took it away from Saul. We remember that as Joel was preaching through First uh, and Second Samuel. He removed the spirit from Saul because of his hardness of heart, his sinfulness towards the Lord. And David, again, convicted of sin, says, don't do that to me. Don't remove that spirit. And what's so beautiful, friends, is that Second Samuel 7, God actually says to David, he won't do that. He uses that very language. I will not remove my spirit from you like I did to Saul. So David is just recalling scripture to God. He is just recalling to God what God had promised him in the covenant in 2 Samuel 7. He does not want the spirit taken away from him. In fact, he does not want to be cast away from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because that is his very identity. I wonder if you can say the same thing. If God were to cast away his presence from you, would you feel completely, utterly undone? Or would you be able to just keep living your life like nothing happened? Our identities are wrapped up in the presence of the Lord in us. David understood that. He then cries to be restored of his salvation. See, David needed a creation of a new heart. He needed a right or righteous spirit. He needed a willing spirit. And he needed a restoration of the joy of his salvation. Because like we said earlier, when we sin, the Lord does take away that joy. The Lord can take away that assurance in us if we are continually in sin. That doesn't mean if we believe in Christ, that our justification has been taken away, but that relationship, that feeling with the Lord can be taken away by our sin. So David sees that he needs to be restored, this joy. He needs to be upheld with a willing spirit. Now, now friends, again, when we look at create in me, renew a right spirit within me, cast me not, Take not your Holy Spirit away. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Number one, uh, what, in what way does David say, is, or say that he participates in this? Not at all. All of this work is all God's work on behalf of David. None of this is done by, of, of David's own works. He understands that it must be God's work on his behalf, without him participating at all. So remember that as we think about our confession of sin and as we place our trust in the one God who can forgive us of our sin. Now, this idea that has been, uh, been talked about in verses 10 through 12 reminds me a little bit of Ezekiel chapter 36. So if you go to Ezekiel chapter 36, you're going to read this beautiful promise, again, another covenant uh, of, of grace. You're going to read this covenant of, of getting a new heart. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, we read this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Friends, I think we see David 
pointing to the same thing that Ezekiel is pointing to, the very fact that we are given in this new covenant, in this covenant of grace that will be fulfilled in Christ, we get this new heart. We get this new spirit. Again, David can't muster this up on his own. It is the God of his salvation that will do it for him. And now we move into our final section, verses 13 through 19, called charge. Now, I don't mean this like, yeah, charge, and go running out into battle, although sure, go do that. That's fine. But what I mean about charge is actually the instruction. So this is what David says that he will do if and when he is forgiven of his sin, if and when he has been given a new heart. So David states, after God gives him a new heart, after God has atoned for his sin, after God has granted him forgiveness, he will then teach transgressors the way of God and sinners will return to God. Really, when you read verses 13 through 17 specifically, we're going to see what a new heart looks like. Under charge, under this instruction, we see this is the overflow of a new heart for David. What's he going to do? He's going to teach transgressors the ways of the Lord. And we'll get back to that more specifically here in a second. But he says, after uh, deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, blood guiltiness, literally talking about him killing someone and that blood being on his hands. Deliver me from this and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. So, so a new heart, a transformed heart is going to be a heart that wants to teach others about the ways of the Lord. A new heart, a transformed heart, is going to be a heart that actually wants to sing aloud of the righteousness of God. Okay, we continue. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Right? This is a man whose words, whose speech has been radically changed by a new heart of God. He wants to disciple. He wants to sing. He wants to praise God. This is what a new heart looks like. If you are claiming that you have been given this new heart as you have been following Christ, but you don't want to disciple others, but you don't have that joy in your heart to proclaim the righteousness of God aloud when we come here to gather and worship, if you do not have the desire to go and tell other people about the word of God, friend, I don't know if you have actually followed after the one true God. Now, David specifically, in verses 16 and 17, teaches transgressors the ways of the Lord. Now, what's really cool about this, if if you just consider this for a moment, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Friends, what are we doing right now? I'm reading Psalm 51 to you, right? Can I have a head nod? Are you guys there? Yeah? Okay, cool. I'm reading Psalm 51, right? And as we're reading Psalm 51, what are we, what's happening? We're being taught the ways of the Lord. And, and, and us as sinners and, and transgressors return to the Lord. Friends, David's prayer has been answered. We are literally a part of the fulfillment of David's prayer being answered. This is cool. This is so cool to sit here and consider that David's uh, uh, prayer had been answered. He had been given a new heart. He had done all of these things, and we continue to do these things by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. And this is what he wants to teach us. He wants to teach us the delight of the Lord. For you will not delight in sacrifice, 
or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Friends, do you remember what we started with in Luke 18? The Pharisee who did all the things, right? He, he, he was great at doing all the things. Look at me, I fast. Look at me, I tithe all this money. Look at me, I'm not like all these other sinners over here. I'm righteous, I'm good, I'm holy. It's all about me. And, and what David is telling us right now is God doesn't delight in those things. He doesn't delight in the outward sacrifices, in the, in the outward things when a heart is far from God. God doesn't care about those things. Your outward works of righteousness, if your heart is hardened and cold to the Lord, they're nothing. Go back to Psalm 50. We read this last month, the fact that, that God has no time for this. In verse 7, he says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Friends, he doesn't need your stuff. God doesn't need your your actions when you have a cold heart. That's not what he's looking for. And in fact, in Psalm 51, he says he will not delight in those things. So stop doing them. Stop pretending like you're a Christian if your heart is far from the Lord. Now he tells us what he does delight in. Remember back in verse 6, right? Back in verse 6, Behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the sacred heart. Now go back to verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He despises your outward works of obedience if your heart is from him, uh, far from him, but he does not despise. In fact, the poetic kind of back and forth here is that he actually delights in your broken spirit. That's what God wants. God doesn't want all your things, God wants a broken spirit and contrite heart, a heart that actually feels it. We read Lamentations, this this feeling in your heart of knowing how sinful you are. We've read David at nausea, he talks about his sin, whether it be his own sin that is ever before him, whether it be the sin of the entire world that he is a part of, all of these sins, David says, I need to be thoroughly cleaned. And he says, God delights in a heart that realizes these things. God doesn't need all the other things because he owns it all. God delights in a broken and contrite heart, but why? You need to ask that question. Why? Why does God delight in this? Let me tell you. It's because when we realize, or when, when all of us realize, when the created realizes that they are not the creator. This is an important fact. 
when we realize that we're not God. That is when a sinner realizes that they are a sinner and that they cannot save themselves. That is when his people realize that he is both just and the justifier. The truth of this psalm is that we are heinous sinners in need of a savior. That our sins are from birth and they are ever before us. And God wants us to understand that, to be humbled by the heinousness of our sin. And realize there is nothing that we can do, contribute, manufacture, pay for that will atone for our sin. There is only one God of salvation. There is only one who can create in us a new heart, restore us from our sin, and hold us fast, and it's not you. You're not that person. And when you realize that, and you realize your sin, your heart is broken. Your spirit is broken. And you have contrition. You understand the weight of your sin. Now, friends, although we don't see it in these verses, we hear it. We hear the gospel all over this psalm. David preaches his sinfulness and his need for a savior, how he needs to be made clean and atoned for, and how his life will change when he gets this new heart he asks for, this new heart that is prophesied in Ezekiel 36 and in Jeremiah 31, in the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, and even talked about in Romans chapter 3. Listen to this and how well this comes back to Psalm 51. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, God delights in a broken and contrite heart because God delights in the truth. The truth is that we need him and that he is faithful to save that he has made a covenant with his son to redeem a people that he has given them, that it would be by his blood in order to make them children of God, that so whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life. God delights in a broken and contrite spirit. God delights in truth. Psalm 50 tells us that God delights in thanksgiving. God delights in his steadfast love and his covenant that he has made with his people. And finally, God delights in himself. The Trinity. Because Jesus is the truth. And the Holy Spirit leads us and convicts us of truth. And God himself delights in the truth. Now, verses 18 and 19, I'm not spending a ton of time in because we're pretty much at the end of our sermon here. But the reality is, as the king goes, so does the kingdom. And so as David calls out for this mercy, he then calls out for that same mercy and goodness to be poured out onto his kingdom, that there would be good, and that God could delight in right sacrifices. But again, that is because a heart has been made new. 
This is how we understand the law and the gospel. We don't do good things to merit God's favor. We do good things because our heart has been transformed. It has been created. It has been restored. It has been upheld with a willing spirit so that we want to do these things. We don't do them so that God will create a new heart in us. So, in conclusion, back to my original question. Which one are you? The Pharisee or the tax collector? Do you brag about your good works? Do you put on a good show at church so that people believe that you are a Christian? Do your friends and your groups think that you must be a Christian? Do your co-workers think that you're a Christian? Does your family think that you're a Christian, but in your inner being you have no contrition for your sin? No brokenness over it? Friends, the Father delight does not delight in a religion like that. He does not care. You are not his if you have no delight for the Lord, if you have no brokenness over your sin. Or are you like the tax collector, one who is utterly broken over his sin, unable to raise your head to the Lord because you know how sinful you are in your inner being. You know the truth. Friends, you may be able to fool us here, but God knows. The one who creates new hearts, he knows. He is the God of salvation. He has created all things. Stop pretending. Acknowledge your sin. Confess. Cry out for mercy. Put your faith in Christ who takes away your sin. And then and only then will you become the delight of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read Psalm 51 again and again and again. And we understand how we are to confess, how we are to actually have a brokenness over our sin. We are to know our sin. We are to acknowledge our sin. We are to repent and plead for forgiveness of our sin. But Father, may we today know in what you delight in, that you delight in the truth and the inward being, that you delight in the fact that you have given us your Son so that if we believe in that truth, we will have eternal life no matter how heinous we are, no matter what sins we've been committing over and over and over again. You will create in us a new heart. You will restore to us a joy and a gladness. You will never cast away your Holy Spirit from us. In fact, you will hold us until the end. God, what a joy, what a gospel to proclaim that us sinners, us wicked and evil sinners have been given a new heart and that by the blood of Christ, all of our sins have been atoned for and that we can sing with our lips, we can teach others and we can praise you with the words of our mouth. Lord, I pray that for all the people in this place today. Amen.